The scripture today is taken from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I feel like after Jay prays like that in the Holy Spirit, that we just have the benediction now and go home. Does that sound, sound about right? Thanks, Jay, for leading us uh, that way. Well, why do you, as a Christian, need peace? Why? Why is that an aspect of the fruit of God's Spirit in us when we have faith in His gospel? Because there's a war that robs you of peace. There's a war going on that robs you of peace. That war is not the kind of war that happens between nations. Instead, it's the kind of war that you have with God Himself. The kind of war that you have with God Himself. You're naturally at war with God, though you may not realize it. In The Dark Knight Rises, Commissioner Gordon, Gary Oldman, love Gary Oldman, Sirius Black, Commissioner Gordon, it's a good thing. Gary Oldman, uh, Commissioner Gordon, is the only one still acting like there's a war going on while the rest of the city is lulled into a false sense of peace. But the commissioner was right. There was a war going on. Only no one chose to acknowledge it until it was much too late. We have a picture of this in Ezekiel 13, verse 10. It's precisely, the Lord says, he's going to judge his people. And it's precisely because the prophets that he had told to speak the truth about who he is and what he does, they had misled his people. And so the Lord says, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, there is no peace, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge them. So there's a war. You see, you can put your hope and your confidence and your significance and your security in other things, in other people. You might feel hopeful, for example, in the possibilities you see in a new boyfriend. Or a new girlfriend. You might feel confident in the way you perform at your job or the way you perform in your classwork. You might feel secure when you're in control or when others think well of you. Much of that is very natural. Very natural. And not all of it is wrong. But the problem is that we tend to take all of our identity from who and what we hope in. We feel confident in what makes us feel significant, what gives us a sense of security. When we do that, God considers it war. Because only He is meant for us to take our security, significance, confidence, identity from. You see, Paul says as much in his later letter to the churches in Rome, when he writes that the nature of our war with God is to exchange the truth of God that we know for a lie. So the nature of the war is when we take our identity from good things, but not God. The lie 
that puts us with war with God is that we and the things we hold dear are enough to make us who we are when it's only God who can do so. So you can sense the war going on when anything threatens those things that we hold dear at a fundamental level. Why? Because when those things are threatened, who we are is also threatened at a fundamental level. The evidence of the war is all around you, but you haven't acknowledged it. So, you're at war with God, but God brings you peace by by doing what? He restores his relationship with you. To understand the peace that he gives you in a restored relationship with him, we have to understand a bit about how he restores it. And so we're going to look at some of the aspects for how he does it. We're going to think about God's desire, and we're going to think about God's substitute. God's desire and God's substitute. Though you are naturally at war with God in the gospel, he desires and brings about a good relationship with you. His heart is for you. And his actions are for you. And that's enough for him to bring restoration to your relationship with him. Now, I think it's pretty difficult to understand this aspect of peace. Because it's so unlike who we are. It's so unlike what we do. You see, when we desire something, we often can't bring it about just because we desire it. Right? I might, for example, desire to be an Olympic swimmer. But just because I desire it doesn't mean that I can bring it about. The reality is I don't have what it takes to be an Olympic swimmer. No matter how much I desire to swim as fast as Michael Phelps, no matter how much I desire that, I can't bring that desire to fruition. Granted, I can learn to swim more quickly than I do now. I might improve my technique. I might strengthen myself. I might build endurance. But it misses the mark by far of Olympic athletes' performance ability. I can't do it. I can't bring my desires to fruition. It's different with God, though, and that's what's hard to understand because it's so unlike what we experience. God brings about whatever he desires. Whatever he desires. God desires peace with you. So he acts to bring that peace about, and he does it. Utterly effective in accomplishing what he desires. A good relationship with you in the gospel. He summons you, his enemy, into intimate relationship with Jesus, as though you were as part of his own family. And his summons can't be refused. One theologian puts it this way, you might be able to refuse an invitation, but you can't refuse a summons. A summons is an offer you can't refuse. The most striking thing about his summons into relationship with Jesus is that he doesn't just summon you after being an enemy. In the gospel, he treats us with utter respect and with love, as though we're family, as though we're friends, although we didn't deserve it. Jesus is called your elder brother now. In the gospel, Jesus teaches that we are now to call our God Father. That was the prayer we just prayed. We begin with saying what? Our Father. 
In the gospel, we are given striking, intimate, and familial position to be in when we were former enemy combatants of God. It's not just that we're no longer enemies. We're summoned into the love of a friend. We're summoned into the love of a family member. How can we understand this balance? As I was thinking about it, one great illustration came to mind from the film, this 2003 film called The Last Samurai, with Tom Cruise and Ken Watanabe. Tom played uh, a disillusioned Civil War veteran named Nathan Algen. And Nathan was contracted to go to Japan, and he was contracted to teach farmers how to use firearms, which were new. And the first task that he was given was to put down the samurai revolt. The leaders leaders in charge vastly underestimated the samurais. They killed everyone in the revolt. The samurais did. And Tom Cruise was making his, his character, Nathan Algon, was making his last stand. When the head of the samurai saw his vow, saw something in him, his valor, his bravery, and though he was an enemy combatant, he took him home. They captured him, they took him home. They bandaged his wounds, put him in a household where there was a woman who took care of him. They trained him in the ways of samurai. They treated him slowly but surely with the respect of one of their community, as a friend, as a family member. And as the story unfolds, to Nathan Algren's surprise, the people who had been taking care of him were the very soldiers, was the very soldier's wife that he took the life of in battle. So he took the life of a soldier and he took that place because of the love, because of the kindness, because of the friendship extended to an enemy. It wasn't just that he was summoned into the community through the power of the samurai, but he was shown love and care. Very similar for us. In the gospel, God desires and brings about a good relationship with you. He's utterly effective in bringing peace to you. And that peace is the fruit of his spirit in our lives. Something to live in line with. Something to keep in step with. So have you thought, then, to our point, that that he's our substitute? Have you thought much about what it means to have Jesus work on your behalf? When you think about your peace with God, have you thought much about what it means? You need to, if you want to live in line with the peace that you've been given, the fruit of the Spirit. You see, Jesus worked on your behalf to restore your relationship with God. Without him working on your behalf, what? You're still at war with God. And without anyone capable of making peace with him, God is a warrior. He's not to be trifled with. And you cannot affect your own peace. With Jesus working on your behalf, though, nothing can infect, nothing can influence the peace that's been won for you. Nothing can take it away. And what are the results of knowing what it means to have Jesus work on your behalf? What are the results of peace, restored relationship that Jesus brings to you? Here it is. Here are the effects. You ready? This is something to write down and take away and pray about. 
you can be assured that God is for you, that he's wise, that he's in control, that nothing can take you from his hand. The alternative to this, of Jesus standing in our place on our behalf, is to be for ourselves. And when we're that, we're unsure if God or if anyone else is for us. It means to be wise ourselves, having to make our own way through the thick fog of circumstance that we face day to day, that besieges our life without any light to guide us through it. And to be in control ourselves, when in reality, we cannot control the most basic things, the numbers of hairs that grow on our head or don't grow. Who loves us? Who doesn't love us? Getting older, where we're born. If we live like that, it results in either worry, the things that we're trying to contrive for ourselves will be taken from us, or apathy. We resign ourselves that we're not going to be able to affect any change. We're not going to be able to make it. We just let it happen to us. No, friends, there's a much better living in store for you than that. Much better living. God wants you to have the peace of his restored relationship with you. He wants you to be assured that he's for you, that he's wise, that he's in control. But to be assured, here's the simpler answer of what that looks like. My grandfather was a simple Christian man, and he used to tell me this, Anne-Marie too. He used to say it all the time, keep your focus. And that was his shorthand for keep your focus on Jesus, who he is, what he's done. So let's spend the next several minutes focusing on Jesus and gaining some assurance from what we see in his work on our behalf. What is it that Jesus did to give you assurance? Here's a helpful definition uh, that Dr. Keller has coined and used as a redeemer in Manhattan all the time. I spent a great number of years there listening to it. You've heard it too, I'm sure. Part of what Jesus has done is he lived the life that should have lived. You know what the theologians call that? They call it active obedience. It's the active obedience of Jesus on your behalf. One theologian puts it like this. God imputes to us the act of obedience of Christ. So he sees us, regards us, counts us, declares us as righteous and holy as Jesus is. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that what? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God imputes our sin to Christ. And his righteousness to us. God judges our sin in Christ. And he regards us as righteous in Christ. That is sometimes called double imputation. Sounds like a big theological term. It is the meat and potatoes of your freedom and your joy and your peace in living out of the gospel and the truth that is there. God not only forgives our sins, he gives us the very righteousness of Christ. We're not only acquitted, but we are considered positively good. 
It's not. The gospel is not that we have a clean slate. And now we have to try really, really, really hard to please God and earn his favor and keep his favor. It is not that. The gospel is that we not only have a clean slate, but we have a fullness of Christ's righteousness that we stand in. We have the security of a Savior who lived the life that we should have lived. You get the power of that? But it's not just that. What else does Jesus do? I went too far ahead. I was going to be a great example of, uh, of Jesus being applied to us. I got carried away. I'm not sure what to do. Should I go back? And should I go forward? We're not only acquitted, but we're positively good. The example that I was going to give you is from Les Mis. You remember this? Jean Valjean. Rough life. Put in the prison for a number of years for stealing a loaf of bread because he couldn't feed those he loved. And he tried to escape and he got more time. And he finally gets out. He's a smart guy, he's a thrifty guy, and he steals, steals some silver from a bishop. And he's caught. And he brings that with his captor to the bishop. And he figures it's over. I'm going back. I'm never going to get out. And the bishop, instead of condemning him, says, Oh, no. Quite the contrary. In fact, you forgot the candlesticks that I meant to give you as well. There's no harm here. What the bishop did was give him, Jean Valjean, his good name, his reputation, his word was who defined Jean Valjean. It transformed him. And that transforms the rest of the story and and unnerves some people in this story. Read it sometime. Jesus' good record was given to you so that you can have a restored relationship with God. You do not stand in your own good record. In fact, much of the secret, if you can call it that, to living in line with the peace of God and that the gospel brings is that it is not just your bad things that you need to turn away from in coming newly to your relationship with God, but it's your best things that you need to turn away from for your security, your significance, your confidence, your identity. Go to him first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There's a reprioritization that goes on in our lives, in our hearts, when we realize what Jesus has done for us. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, and God gives us that record when your relationship is restored in the gospel. Have you looked at that lately? Look. All right. I'm caught up. Jesus not only lived the life that you should have lived, but he died the death that you should have died. Here's another helpful quote I came across while reading for today. He took up your sins upon himself and thereby did away with your sins. Theological term, expiation. We had to know that for our theological exam on the floor of Presbyterian. What's the difference between propitiation and expiation? We'll get into that another time. Expiation. He took your sins upon himself and thereby did away with your sins. As we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made sin for us. He became our substitute. 
As such, he took the full penalty that we owed God, the penalty of death. By doing so, Jesus wiped our slate clean. We have nothing to fear from God. Nothing. God forgives our sins fully and completely, taking them as far from us as the east is from the west. Another dark night illustration. I saw the movie twice. Can you believe that? I think you saw it three times or more. It's pretty dark. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I, there is a powerful example. There's a mercenary in the movie who who's, falls in love. He falls in love, and it's a dear love. But in his work as a mercenary, the rule of the land captures him and puts him in this awful pit. And the pit is so awful because there's always sunlight and it's just out of reach. You can try to climb your way to freedom, but you can never quite get there. And so you're left at the bottom of this pit, hungering for freedom, being tempted with a notion that you can possibly reach it, but you can't. And so he's condemned to be separated from his love, and he's condemned to die there. Until one day, he's lifted up out of that pit, and he's told that he's freed. And he goes looking for his love. Only the way that he was freed was that she had herself put in the pit in his place. She loved him so much that she gave herself for him so that he could live. Jesus does that for us. He substituted himself for you, dying the death you should have died so that your relationship with God could be restored. If it was Jesus who took the penalty of death, then why would you have to fear judgment by standing before God without a substitute? You have a substitute. You have someone who stood in. You have someone who paid the penalty. In the gospel, you have Jesus. And he stood in your place. And he did not budge. The biggest show of character you'll ever see. He said so himself. No greater love at the man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. For his friends. He calls you friend. You don't have to stand there. He's in your place. So stop trying like you can stand there. Be at peace. It's a fruit of God's spirit in your life. Another aspect of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf is Redemption. This is the last thing we'll tackle. This concept is important. You know what redemption means? It literally means buying something back. You were bought back. There's a great example in the prophet Hosea. It's a powerful story. The Lord refers to his people and their spirituality as prostitution. Whoredom is the actual word that's used. That's the way their spirituality looks in reference to their love and the way that they're going after God, and the way that they're not going after God, and the way that they're worshiping false things. And so God tells the prophet Hosea, go and take Gomer as your wife. She's a wife of Horton. She's a prostitute. And she's going to be unfaithful to you. And she's going to have children with you. And she's going to leave. And you need to go to her. And you need to marry her. And she does all these things. And Hosea's struck. What do I do? 
How do I love this one who's so unfaithful? It's all meant to be a sign against his people. And the Lord says, go, buy her back, redeem her. And so this is what we read in Isaiah 3, 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And so will I also be to you. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that he's come to give life, his life, as what? As a ransom for many. Buying us back as God's lost property. His sacrifice on the cross was an act of great value. And it purchased for him a people, a people of his own possession. So we belong to God because Jesus' work bought us back. You're not your own. You're not if you're in the gospel. You were bought with a price, a very dear and precious one, very high-costing one. There's no way that anyone else could have paid it. If you pay for something you want and bring it home as your own with a receipt showing that you paid for it and that it's yours, can anyone else lay claim to what you own as though they bought it instead of No. Friends, Jesus is our receipt in the gospel. His work on our behalf shows God's ownership of us. And that's good news. For what owner besides God calls us brothers, calls us sisters, calls us sons and daughters, friends, and heirs to the kingdom? We're friends and heirs. No one does that. Only God brings you that kind of peace. And only He has done so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Will you come to him now? Will you stop resting in what you do and what you try to do? Will you know the peace that comes from resting in the person and work, what he's done for you on your behalf? When you do that, when you truly do that, you will bear the aspect of fruit of the Spirit, known as peace. What do we say peace was? It's a restored relationship with God. Confident assurance that God is for us, that he's wise, that he's in control rather than trust ourselves. Away with worry, away with anxiety, away with apathy. Be filled with love, with joy, and with peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you give us your words. You give us the story. And you not only give us the story, you wrap us up in it. You fold us right into your family so that we can draw near to you, not afraid, not proud, but free, at peace, a restored relationship friendship with you, brotherhood with you. We are made a part of your family because of our faithful Lord and Savior Jesus. Thanks be to God. It's in your name we pray.
Amen.